Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Nick Powell. Uh, I lead uh, a community group here. I also lead worship with Joseph. And uh, I'm also doing a church planting internship. So if any of you are interested in church planting, let's grab coffee. I'd love to talk about that. Um, and we're excited because we keep plodding through the book of Exodus. We're doing a really long sermon series on uh, the book of Exodus where we're going chapter by chapter, uh, looking at the story and seeing what God has for us um, in this book. And if you're visiting with us this morning, or if you missed last week, uh, by way of reminder, Cole took us through Exodus 15, where he did a really good job of showing how the Song of Moses really exalts the salvation and the grace aloneness of God. That was really what the theme of that sermon was, was on salvation and God's great demonstration of power. Because he alone rescued the people from oppression, from the Egyptian empire, from slavery that they were subjected to, and from the dark powers and principalities that were at work in their life. So Moses, he held up this song, or he holds up salvation in the song like a jewel. This is the imagery that Cole used to illustrate this. And he's like turning the jewel. He's seeing how salvation is beautiful from all these angles. And yet, there's another problem that creeps into this story. It's like almost immediately. It's actually quite jarring. Because God just teased out the plagues in order to claim this like nail-biter of a victory over Egypt and over the corruption and so the Israelites find themselves saved from what's behind them, and then we find them looking ahead towards the journey in front of them. And what's ahead is the wilderness. It's a really common theme throughout Scripture. It's this naked and this desolate place. And this is where they will meet an enemy that they can't just toss into the sea super quickly. Israel's next big problem is Israel. So this is where we find the story today. God has saved Israel people from something, and now they're journeying to something. But for Israel, the end goal is not entirely clear yet. But what is clear is that Israel is about to find out what comes after salvation. And this is the question of the text. This is the question that I want lingering in your hearts and your minds this morning as we go through this. What comes after salvation? Because you'll quickly find that it's not just the story of Exodus, it's not just the question facing the Israelites at this moment long ago. This is also the question that we have burning in our minds as we look forward to the journey ahead. So will you stand together? We're going to read Exodus. If you're able, we're going to read Exodus 16 through 17. Not all of 17, but this is a kind of a large chunk of scripture. But we believe that God's word is important. So will you join me in looking at this? So Exodus 16, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And the sixth day when they 
prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what, we, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. When Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at the twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any part over until the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered Twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is the day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. And so they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the Sabbath day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. 
the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of the Ephath. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandments of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for the water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take your hand, in your hand the staff with which uh, some of the, or that struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, and there on the rock of Horeb you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. And will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we need help this morning. I pray that when we listen to your word preached, when we read your word, and when we pray, and when we sing, that we would do that knowing that you're real and that we trust that you're real. We believe that you're present with us. Lord, I pray against intellectual assent alone this morning. I pray that you would be present with this body and this church this morning as we gather. We're hungry to hear from you, and we're hungry to experience you this morning, Lord. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what comes after salvation? That's not just a question that the Israelites were facing. The world's also asking this question. That's what I want us to see this morning. Ancient Hebrews, the modern church, the rest of the world, we all want to be saved and free to live the good life, right? And this question can take on many forms. For example, the world wants to know once we're free from like the patriarchy, what happens? Once we're free from Trump, who will lead? Once we're liberated from our biology and our human limitations, who will we become? When we're free, what direction do we take? What comes after salvation? But the problem with the world's understanding of salvation is that there's confusion on what we're saved from and what we're saved to. So with just a casual read on the culture, you'd get the impression that we're always and only saved from Egypt. They were always and only saved from the Egypts of this world. And you would get the sense that the world is divided into two people, two groups, the oppressors and the oppressed, the Egypts and the Israels. And while the Egypts of the world do exist out there, we see in the text this morning that to be saved, to be truly free, to find home 
We must face what's in here, not just out there. And that's to say ourselves. So this is literally, what the, literally the opposite of what the pop culture says. To say that you are your biggest problem is to be really offensive to a lot of people. Whether it's from some cheap self-help book that you may have picked up or heard someone talking about or some pop figure in culture, you've probably heard this, one, this mantra, live your truth, right? Live your truth. Which is ultimately a statement about salvation and getting on the right path. So here's an example from, uh, you guys familiar with the Huffington Post? I wouldn't recommend reading it all the time, but it's got some interesting stuff in there. Um, the Huffington Post writes this article. It is, this gal said, four steps to living your truth. Number one is accept who you are at this moment. Accept who you are, and I mean fully accept it, without judgment or blame, and feel the floodgates of progress open up before you. You're perfect right here, right now. Remember it and believe it. Number two, acknowledge who you are. Who are you? What do you stand for? It's, it's wonderful, isn't it, being you? Let yourself break free from the cocoon and fly. Number three is define your truth. So this may take a bit of work. Figuring out your truth and reality, you, are, you already know it. But for whatever reason, fear, judgment, previous definitions, denial, you've buried your truth deep within the abyss. If you stop and listen and feel your inner self, you will become aware of the truths that lay within you. Take the time to think on it, feel on it, meditate on it, journal it. Define your truth and then roll with it. That's what she says. Number four, live loudly and proudly. Now that you know your truth, live it loudly and live it proudly. Let no one deny you of your truth. Be honest and full in your truth. Don't hide behind judgment, self, or society inflicted or anything else. Your personal truth is just that. It's truth. Haven't we been told always to tell the truth? So do it loudly and proudly. Now you're ready. Your truth has been unearthed, and now you live your truth. So that's literally the worst advice ever. Because, because scripture and human history both testify that humans left to our own devices to craft truth and to craft a way forward have got it abysmally wrong. This is because we are our own worst enemy. We need outside help. And more specifically to us, we need God's help. And this is why God not only has to break every chain of external oppression from the Egypts, but also has to break every chain of internal oppression. The internal oppression is what the Bible calls the flesh or sin. As a human, you're, you're worth it. Like, you're valuable. You're intrinsically valuable right now sitting here. Christian or not Christian, you're valuable. But there is much corruption on the inside of you that needs to be gotten rid of and replaced with something better. So insert yourself back into the Exodus story. You're saved by the grace of God, but now what? Your journey's just begun. Where do you go? Where do you belong? And where is home? And the reality of the human condition is that we're just not home, right? You all feel this. You all feel that we're not completely home, no matter how awesome of a homemaker you are. The Bible testifies that humans were once the placed people who had a home, but we lost it and were now displaced. But God's covenant promise, which is a theme throughout all of Exodus, 
is that he promises to provide a home for his people once again. But as the Exodus demonstrate, this doesn't just happen overnight. Once you're saved by the grace aloneness of God, once you're a born-again Christian, brought from death to life, you're not immediately home. And so the wilderness prepares us for home. For followers of God, the biblical path must go through the wilderness. It must. There's no substitutes for that. This is where this thrilling adventure of faith becomes the testing of your faith. There's no substitutes for this crucible experience. The wilderness is where the the chains on the inside get broke. I want us to see that this morning. The wilderness is where the hard work of replacement happens. It's where old desires are replaced for new ones and where false homes are replaced for the real ones. The testing, preparing, and replacing that happens in the wilderness is what the New Testament describes as sanctification, right? That's a, that's a theological term that Christians use as sanctification. So here's a definition of sanctification taken from one of the, the historic confessions that we, like to, that we like to draw from at Frontier. It says, by the power of the Spirit, the domain of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the lusts and more, are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Or, a little less academic, Lewis's popular quote says, it's not that God finds your desires too strong, it's that he finds them too weak. We are like children playing in mud plies when a holiday at the sea is offered. Or to use the Exodus story imagery, we're like Israelites wanting to die by the meat pots when God is offering us the manna of life. It's the wilderness that exposes the inner slavery in your life. It exposes our corrupt desires and offers a place for replacing them. This is the place where sanctification happens. For Israel, the wilderness, it drew out all sorts of ucky stuff, right? And if you're in the wilderness, if you're in a season of testing and trying, you know that it has a tendency to draw out a lot of ugly, ugly, ugly? I have kids. Ugly? I wanted to say ucky, but it's, you get it. So take a look at 16.3. It says, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. God led them to feel food-deprived so that they would recognize that they were spiritually deprived. It's not that wanting was the problem, right? Some of you are going to have a tendency to think that, that your desires are the problem. That's, they are part of the problem because they're corrupt, but not the fact that you want food. You know, The fact that they wanted food, meat, bread, that was not the problem. It's the way they wanted the food. It's the particular way they desired the food, and, and it's the kind of food they desired. It reflected a deeper inner problem. Something deep down in their souls was seriously amiss. So one way to illustrate this is to think of somebody, maybe you know them or somebody you've seen on the TV, um, who's been in prison. Somebody who's spent an extended period of time in prison and has become institutionalized, or uh, what sociologists called prisonized. A prisonized person struggles to integrate into society because they've grown to accept the culture of prison, even its corrupt ways. Prison changes people to the core, especially people who go um, in when they're young, like 
you know this, right? It changes their psyche, their personality, their heart, their mind, their entire being is affected by prison. Prison seeps into their bones. So you could say that Israel went to prison when they were super young. They spent 400 years in Egypt, 400 years in oppression and slavery. It's all they knew. Their entire, entire being was molded by life in prison, and now they're struggling to reshape their core desires to the ways of God from the ways of prison. And this just doesn't happen overnight. It just doesn't flip a switch. So this is actually the way the entire Bible conceptualizes sin because this is, this is the imagery that Paul borrows. He says, um, when he describes sin, he's describing us being slaves to the flesh, slaves to our sin's desires. And this has been the default mode inbred in you, inbred in humanity since Adam. So this, in this sense, we're humans, we're born into a spiritual prison of sin and all people are born as slaves to sin. So we are like prisonized inmates on the inside. So it's a lifelong journey to change that and to change we must pass through the wilderness. We must pass through the wilderness. Israel spent 40 years there. That's a blip that you could miss if you fly through that text. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. So getting to where you need to go and finding home is going to take a while. It's a process. It doesn't have, happen overnight. So God used the wilderness to test his people and to subvert and to supplant their corrupt habits and replace their messed up core desires with the right ones. This is biblical sanctification. God removes the prisonized you and replaces it with the God-redeemed you. And this is why God put them into the wilderness, why he led them into the wilderness, and why he leads you into the wilderness. So let's take a look at how God um, specifically did this with Israel. First, we see that God tested their hearts through their stomachs. So it's a test. They tested them through their stomachs. And we see that the food deprivation, it makes them freak out, right? It's like that gloomy popular saying that a lot of libertarians or anarcho-capitalists like to say. Uh, Humans are only nine meals away from anarchy. You guys ever heard that? Kind of doom and gloom kind of thing to say. But this is exactly what we see because later in the passage, Moses cries to God and says, these people are about to stone me. There's about to be an uprising and they're going to kill me over some food and water. There's something going on here. The Israelites are struggling to adjust to life on the outside, just like a prisoner who struggles to adjust to life on the outside. The wilderness is leading some to become nihilistic. They'd rather die. They'd rather die as slaves with their bellies full, then be free in the wilderness with God. And this is how you know you're in the wilderness yourself. When you start saying things like, I don't care, before you do something silly, before you do something gross, before you think something gross, right before you sin, if you're saying things like, I don't care, you're probably in the wilderness. That's a good indication that you are in the wilderness. If life is so hard that you just need a release or a quick indulgence in your old ways, or if you find yourself irrationally running from God, you're in the wilderness. The wilderness is where the Hebrews wanted the meat pots, and it's where you might want to quit your job or cheat on your spouse or take a hit of cocaine. Weird stuff happens in the wilderness, and this is where the spiritual work of sanctification happens. 
So take a look at 16.4. Exodus 16.4 says, uh, well, God is, God is telling Moses that it's a test. He's explicitly saying that this is a test. And this is sanctification language. It was the test of wants and of desires. So God's wilderness test exposes dark things in their hearts. This is what God is leading you into the wilderness to show you this morning. God leverages, and here's the principle, is that God leverages ordinary struggles in your life. Like to use the language from James, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He's saying, consider every trial, trials of all kinds. So all of the ordinary struggles in your life is a tool for God to reveal the inner corruption in you and the need for you to change by God's grace. So another tool in the passage, if you notice, is... um, is the Sabbath, and we could probably preach an entire sermon on the Sabbath. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where it's just, we're going to have to learn what, what we need to learn as it relates to sanctification here. God uses the Sabbath as a tool for sanctification. And at this point in the story, the written law hasn't been given. So if you guys have read forward, you'll end up realizing that Moses gets a bunch of rules and regulations, and, and that he gets something called uh, what we call the Mosaic Law. So don't let it trip you up that the word law here is used and that God wants them to follow the law. It essentially means God's way. God wants Israel to follow God's way, wants them to follow the law, which is essentially conformity to God's design. And if you remember from Genesis, God created the world in six days, and then what happened? On the seventh day, they rested. God declared the Sabbath as a cosmic reality. Right? I think sometimes we get caught up that the Sabbath is only in the Old Testament. It's only for the Old Testament people. It's not just Moses' thing. The Sabbath is a cosmic reality. It's the design of the world that we live in. But as it relates to this morning's text, it's significant. It's significant because God is using it as a test when they're in the wilderness. So why do they do that? The people need to have their deepest sense of rest sanctified, right? Their deepest sense of rest needs to be redeemed. So what's clear in the story is that God takes the Sabbath to be a pretty big deal, which we don't. Obviously, you you guys can feel this. In general, we don't take the theme of the Sabbath to be a big deal, even if we don't even know what it means. But those people didn't treat it as a big deal either. They failed to keep it. They gathered too much bread during the week, and they tried to look for the Sabbath, or they tried to look for it on the Sabbath. This, and what this demonstrates is the people had compulsive work habits, which exposed an inability to trust God. This is the sin that the Sabbath drew out. And it, and it teaches us that man's deepest rests of the soul can't be a man's pride in his work. If what gives you the greatest sense of satisfaction in your soul is what you did or accomplished, something is seriously amiss. That's when God will use the Sabbath to draw that out. Your deepest rest for the soul must be your trust in God's control and not your control. So there's a real dark side to not keeping the Sabbath. It's because the Sabbath is a powerfully formative habit. And habits have a way of shaping what you desire, right? Like we already talked about that the habit of prison shaped their desires. On top of being inherently sinful, because the sin had been spread throughout each human and all of human history, They're, they've been in slavery, so they got a lot of stuff that was done to them that they needed rooted out. And so habits have a way of shaping your desires. 
And if you're in the habit of not keeping the Sabbath, you're training yourself to believe that your deepest rest comes from your own two hands and no further. It creates a habit of functional unbelief. And this is why God condemned the gathering of too much manna and why Jesus condemned the building of bigger barns. Not because food or barns is bad, right? The wanting of barns and food and and things that God has created is not the bad thing. But it's because laid deep within the soul of man is this dark tendency to think that the world turns by your grinding effort. If you don't Sabbath, that indicates that you may not trust God. So compulsive work habits are a good indication that you're not trusting God. And so here's a searching question to ask yourself. Maybe write this down. When I'm in the wilderness, do I use work as a hiding place instead of God? Do you grind late nights to dodge some problems in your life? The sense that you feel out of control? And I'm not saying that you can't go to the grocery store on Saturday. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a deeper, more fundamental reality going on here. But what I'm saying is that if you do not have a physical embodied rhythm of rest from your labor, you may be training yourself to distrust God. So the entire test of the wilderness, it points to something, it points to something beyond itself. It points to the fact that God is sanctifying his people for something truer and something better, something realer and something fuller. And I can think of no other word that captures that than the word home. Our true home is where God lives, and to be with God, this is where it is all heading. So the real hope of the wilderness is that God is sanctifying his people to live in his presence. God is sanctifying you to live in his presence. And the wilderness creates an opportunity that causes his people to press into the presence of God. So this is something I don't want us to miss this morning. The wilderness is a tool that is driving the people into God's presence. This is the theme that's hiding in plain sight in this storyline. So take a look at, take a look at where the, the text here references the presence of God. So 16.7 references the glory of the Lord. Verse 11 says, the glory of the Lord appeared. 17.6 says, I will stand before you on the rock. And the final reference to God's presence, which haunts the rest of the story, is, is the Lord among us or not? What do we learn from this? We learn that the wilderness is a place that reveals God's presence, but the Israelites seem to be missing it, right? They're missing it. That's kind of the heartbreak of the story. It's like, how could you be missing it? I mean, I just read the plagues, and I read the incredible works of the Lord, and there's a glory cloud. What the heck is that? A glory cloud. Like, I'm pretty sure if a glory cloud showed up here, I think we would, we would know that God's here. But would we? Because the Israelites are missing it. So they're like children. They're beside themselves. They're like crying in the corner. And God's like wrapping his arms around them like a father saying, I love you. I'm here. It's going to be okay. I'll take care of you. I'm never going to leave you. But even this picture is not quite right. It's, it's, not, it's not exactly what's going on here. Because how do we make sense of all the references where he says, remember God's presence? Or the last question that people ask, is the Lord among us or not? Is Yahweh among us or not? That's a crazy question. So the psalmist reflects on this story in Psalm 78. If you haven't read Psalm 78, it dovetails quite nicely with a lot of the Exodus stuff. It's, it's got, 
it's got the psalmist commentary on the story that we're reading. And even despite God's powerful acts of salvation, the psalmist declares, yet they sin still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? So something deeply perverse and rebellious is happening here. This is what I don't want you to miss. The wilderness is clearly testing ground for God to test man, right? That's a theme that's coming through. God says, this is a test. You walking through the wilderness is a test. But also, man is testing God. How does that work? How can we test God? And the testing of God is most sharply represented by that last question, is God among us or not? Is Yahweh here? So don't miss the absurdity of this because the God who speaks from fire and who, and who parts the Red Sea, who lays waste to the evil empires, who shames the pantheon of Egyptian gods, can he also provide basic human satisfaction? Like That seems to be what is implied here. Can God fulfill our desires? What is, what's happening here with this question? It's not that the people forgot God existed. Like, that's absurd. I sh- that should be obvious in the text that these people were not stupid. They were not that stupid. Is God here? Don't read it like that. Is God here? That's not what they're saying. It'd be like a mother working in the kitchen on supper, right? You're working in the kitchen, and your children are with you in that kitchen. And you're chopping the onions, and you're getting the soup ready, and you're pulling the bread out of the oven. And one of your kid blurt, blurts out, are you going to make supper or what? You're obviously making supper. She's making supper literally right in front of you. And you're blurting out, are you going to make supper? It's not a rational question. What it represents is that they distrusted God's leadership. The people tested God because they doubted that he would spread a table for them in the wilderness. They doubted that the presence of God would satisfy them. Psalm 78 goes on to tell us that this question provoked God. He writes, Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath, and fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Frontier Church, do you believe in God and do you trust in his saving power? Do you believe God wants you to be satisfied? Do you actually believe that? This is such an important question to not dismiss. Do you believe that in the cross of Christ, that you don't just see forgiveness of sins, but you see the fullness of joy? This, the wilderness and the cross, trial and suffering, the cruciform way of life is the pathway to the presence of God, a pathway that God has made available by his grace alone. So the wilderness forces a decision. Will you press into the presence of God for satisfaction and joy, or will you go back to the meat pots? When life gets hard, will you lean in and trust in God? 
Will you trust in the presence of God or will you trust in your old corrupt ways and desires? Leaning into the presence of God is what the New Testament describes as walking by the Spirit. And it is the Spirit that Paul says is the guarantee of your salvation. The presence of God is actually how you know you're saved. It's the proof that you're being sanctified. It's so much deeper than intellectual ascent into the doctrine of Coram Deo or something. This is a matter of life and death. This is how you get through the day. It's how you get through life in the wilderness. What, what does this look like when we're actually on this journey? It's, this is extremely hard. And one thing I just feel like I need to say is that the wilderness, the wilderness is not always your fault. The fact that you're in suffering seasons and trial seasons is life in a fallen world. You walk through the wilderness as, as Israel walked through the wilderness, partly because of their own corruption, but partly because they had so much injustice done to them. Be- the fact that it was hard for them in the wilderness was, was because they were wronged against. And so if you've been wronged against and you're having a hard time living, I just want to say it's not your fault. And God says that he's going to be present with you to satisfy you. So the journey is, is, is you're on the wilderness journey, not because you've sinned and God is judging you for it, but because it's a necessary part of being human. God wants to redeem your humanity and make your desires more sturdy, your joy more sturdy. And that comes through the process of sanctification, no matter who you are. I just feel like I need to say that. You need to be freed from that if that's you. So this is super hard, but this is why we follow Jesus into the wilderness. The cool thing about Jesus is he's simultaneously our wilderness example and our wilderness provision. He is our manna from heaven and water from the rock. As we follow Jesus into the wilderness, we're sanctified. We're transformed by the power of the Spirit into his likeness. So the Spirit of Jesus allows us to flourish in the wilderness. So in Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus' wilderness example looked a lot like the Exodus. It looked a lot like the Exodus wilderness experience. The Spirit led him into the wilderness, not because he had sinful, corrupt desires or sin in his heart. He was led into the wilderness so that he would go before us in victory. Jesus does what the Israelites couldn't do. He does what you can't do in the wilderness because he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, right? We believe that as Christians. When the wilderness, when the wilderness weight is bearing down on us and it seems too heavy to bear, the worst thing that you could do is say, I'm just going to try harder. I'm, I'm just going to buck up and, and figure it out. Like if any of you have struggled with depression, you know that's not what works. That just doesn't work. Just try harder. Jesus goes before us into the wilderness and he demonstrates that joy is possible in the wilderness. It is possible. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus will help you find nourishment in the wilderness. His Spirit is your nourishment into, in the wilderness. Not the idea of Jesus' Spirit, but Jesus' Spirit in the wilderness. He's promised to be your bread of life and your deepest sustenance. He promises to be with you, like really with you. 
So do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus wants to be with you and satisfy you? Because this is why we follow Jesus. It's at base level, this is why we follow Jesus. So to conclude, in the time of testing, will you press into the presence of Jesus? That's the question that you face this morning, is that will you, will you press on forward into the presence of Jesus and receive his nourishment? So when your spouse cheats on you or when you backslide back into drugs or if you cheat on your spouse or when you just feel completely cold and lonely, will you press into the presence of God? Will you press into Jesus? Or will you be like the Israelites asking if he's present at all while he's making food for you in the kitchen? So the wilderness is where faith gets real. This is why there's no substitute for it. This is why the Bible refers to it as a test, because it tests the genuineness of your faith. If you're scrambling for the meat pots when you bump into the wilderness, you should seriously do business with Jesus, because that indicates a lack of trust. Running back to the old ways, the old man or woman in you that wants to go back to the old sin and the old nasty darling lusts of your life Press on to Jesus, knowing that he will satisfy you more. That's when faith gets real. So as you, as you go, I want to give you some practical like takeaways. Because this conversation can be kind of ethereal. We don't have a glory cloud and water's being smacked with water pouring out of it. So how do you press into the presence of God as 21st century Christians walking out of front of your church, going to your suburbs, going to your apartments? So I want to give you some practical ways. Number one, is read and meditate on God's word. So soak in it until it gets into your prisonized bones. Cole has done a great job in the Psalms series to demonstrate and to illustrate what it could look like for you to meditate on scripture. Meditation doesn't have to be a dirty word, right? It doesn't have to be a refer- it doesn't have to be like yoga to some of you. Some of you when you hear the word yoga you're like, I don't want any of that eastern spirituality. Meditate on God's word means to soak in the truths of God and to press into the presence of God. So number two, be with God's people. This is crazy. So first, first Peter uses an illustration to describe the presence of God. He says, you literally are the house of God. God's presence is living in you. God lives with you as the temple He's borrowing imagery from the Old Testament where God is literally coming to be present with his people in the temple. And he's saying, that's actually you right now. Because of the cross of Christ, God has chosen to take up residence in you. And when you gather together, you're building into a larger house of God. So your temples upon temples upon temples to create, like these bricks, a house where, the God, where God lives So it's entirely appropriate for you to, in the wilderness experiences of your life, when you're struggling with, whether it's depression or with habitual sin or anything that's a struggle, it's entirely appropriate to you say, I'm not skipping Sunday morning because God's there. It's entirely appropriate to say that. In fact, it's actually something that you should do. Do not neglect to be with people. Community group, Sunday morning, gathering with other Christians because God lives there. He's manifestly present in those places, and he wants to give you life. Also, number three, take the sacrament of communion seriously. 
God has given you this tradition as a reminder that he's present with you. So it's like that omer in the jar. You wonder why the omer, why is that in there? We save an omer. We save some seed or some breadcrumbs, put it in a mason jar, lock it up, put it in the freezer. Why is that there? Because the bread in the cup reminds us that God is present with us. It's a reminder. It's a tangible, embodied reminder that God is present with us. And it reminds us that through the cross of Christ, he is made near to us, especially in the wilderness. Like, especially in the wilderness. So the last thing I'll ask you guys is, will you join me in drawing near to God, pressing into the presence of God, and trust that he is faithful to draw near to us? Is that something he actually promised and that we can experience? Or is that something to be left to a theology textbook? So you pray with me.